commentary. Um, if you have that, if you're following along, around page 56 or so in that commentary, um, with his notes on the seven letters of preparation. Brighton has some very interesting ideas here. And, you know, I think, I think maybe the main idea that I want to communicate and that we want to make sure and get across here, that we not view these seven letters in maybe, maybe one or two, one of two common errors, or, or maybe both of them. But here would be the common errors. Reading these letters as if one letter sort of fits you or sort of fits your congregation in specific. Now, it may be the case that uh, one of these letters has certain commonalities with you or your congregation or your experience in a church, but that's not really the intent such that you would single out one of these letters and say, oh, that's what we need to hear. That's what Faith Lutheran Church of Capistrano Beach needs to hear or you know, whatever the name of your church is and wherever you're located. That would be to somewhat miss the point. We're going to remember that as we progress into the book of Revelation, we've got these sevenfold motifs that drive the, the, the narrative, that drive the content of the vision. And so you've got the, the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven censers. And here you have uh, seven letters to the seven churches. So one of the ways that we want to hear this as, is as a sevenfold letter to each one of us, to each one of our congregations. The contents of each of these individual letters are meant to sort of harmonize into a whole, into a one. There's a, there's a sevenfold message for the seven churches, for the sevenfold church, which is the church. And so to, to read these in interrelationship is very important. We don't want to read them in the way of just one individual letter being uh, my own personal letter or the, the, congrega- you know, the, the letter that my congregation needs to hear or something like that. You want to take them as a whole. Um, what we also want, will see in these letters is that there is a way to read them in interaction with one another uh, such that you can see um, what Brighton calls the seven deadly sins uh, here in Revelation, namely the major sin in each of these mini letters that the Lord uh, records and, um, and makes mention of to his, to his churches. So let, let me give you an example here from, from Brighton, and, and this will cover some of the themes that I've, I've mentioned. The complete and holy number seven not only indicates that the seven churches represent all the churches, but it also suggests that all churches and all Christians are under the grace, forgiveness, renewal, guidance, and motivation of God through the sevenfold presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That is the seven spirits in chapter 1 verse 4. The seven churches then symbolize the entire church of Jesus Christ under the motivating influence of the Holy Spirit. In Revelation, the number 12 and its multiples, 24 and 144,000, represent the church of God, uh, yes, represent the church of God as church. The number seven symbolizes the sevenfold presence of the Spirit and the church under the control of the Spirit. And we covered some of those themes just last week when we looked at uh, the connection between the seven spirits of God, when we talked about um, the seven uh, lampstands, the seven golden lampstands, and we tied that in with uh, Zechariah and the seven seven spirits, and then these lampstands. Jesus tells us are the churches. That's back in chapter 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so what we're seeing here then in, this, in these sevenfold letters, not individual letters to pick out as such, but rather a whole harmonization um, that is meant to be received by the whole church on earth.
Okay, and then back to and then Brighton's point on this idea of the seven deadly sins of these churches. Um, we're on page 62 if you're following along in the commentary. The seven sins and failings mentioned in the letters, each letter deals with one particular kind of sin, are also addressed to all churches and all Christians. Okay, so did you get that? Each letter deals with one particular kind of sin, and these are also addressed to all churches and all Christians. That's the point. Though the sins are specific to particular churches, all churches and all Christians are tempted by and may easily fall prey to any or all of these attitudes and behaviors. The sins or failings seem to suggest a pattern or sequence. That is, each sin, when encountered in temptation and then in commission, leads to the following temptation or sin. When Christians leave their, quote-unquote, first love for Christ, now that's a reference to chapter 2, verse 4, and the church of Ephesus, there then follows the sin, or at least the temptation, of fear. And that's a reference to chapter 2, verse 10, the church in Smyrna. Fear then gives way or leads into the sin of attempting to serve both God and mammon, and thus the danger of idolatry, as exampled by Balaam and Balak, a reference to chapter 2, verse 14, and the church of Pergamum. The sin or temptation of idolatry can lead into the error of the teaching of Jezebel, a reference to chapter 2, verse 20, and the church of Thyatira, which denies the uniqueness of Christianity and which in, or we could even say the exclusivity of Christianity, and which in turn gives way to a deadness, reference to chapter 3, verse 1, and the church in Sardis, a deadness of faith and heart. Once this has happened, there is no longer the desire to take full advantage of opportunities to serve others in proclaiming the gospel, reference to chapter 3, verse 8, the church in Philadelphia. The final sin which results from these is that of being, quote-unquote, lukewarm. Chapter 3, verse 16, uh, that a reference to the final letter to the church in Laodicea. So being lukewarm in one's relationship to uh, or with the Lord Christ. Once this happens, one is fit only to be separated from the Lord by being cast out of his holy presence. Okay, so there are seven deadly sins, and they seem, as Brighton suggests here, to sort of have an interaction with one another, maybe even leading from one to the other. What then do we see as a corollary to this, or or the opposite of this? We see uh, seven gospel promises. And so at the each of these letters we have to the one who conquers some theme like this or similar to it, uh, and then we have seven gospel promises that correspond to the seven deadly sins and to the seven churches, these seven gospel promises. And again, what's important here, and I think this is where some Christians get hung up, is they see these gospel promises and they think to themselves individually, oh, that promise is for me. You know, not the other one or the other one or, you know, but just this one church, this one gift, this one promise, that's my unique gift or promise. Uh, that's, that's to misread the text. The, just as there's this sevenfold sin and this sevenfold call for all Christians and all churches to repent, there's this sevenfold gospel promise given to all churches and given for all of us corporately and individually to receive. And so, you know, Brighton doesn't go into a a great, well, wait wait a minute, maybe he does here. Yeah, yeah, so Brighton does go into this just a little, and I'll I'll read from him so you get the same kind of, you know, symmetrical treatment that we just did of the seven deadly sins. Over on page 64 of his uh, commentary, just right up at the top, he says, the Christian who conquers, if that language isn't familiar to you, it will be as we go through the letters, the Christian who conquers is one who endures the period of temptation and suffering and is faithful until the end of earthly life. So that's the one who conquers in every single letter, in every single instance, simply enduring in faithfulness. 
Brighton continues, the first promise speaks of paradise and the tree of life. That, of course, is a reference to chapter 2, verse 7, and the letter to Ephesus. A reminder of the Eden-like quality of that eternal life. The second and third promises hold out before the eyes of faith the truth that eternal death and hell have been forever destroyed for the Christian. A reference to chapter 2, verse 11, and, of course, the church uh, in Smyrna. Since he is, in Christ, innocent of all guilt and judgment, and is sustained by the manna of heaven, reference to chapter 2, verse 17, uh, and that's the church in Pergamum. In the fourth and fifth letters, the promise is given that the believer will participate in Christ's everlasting reign, reference to chapter 2, 26 and following, which is uh, Thyatira. Clothed in white and having his name written in the book of life, chapter 3, verse 5, reference to the church in Sardis. And the sixth and seventh letters voice beautiful promises concerning eternal habitation in the new Jerusalem because of the name of God, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, okay, which of course is going to be Philadelphia. And then, in the New Jerusalem, God's saints will sit with Him on His throne and on the throne of Christ, 321, Laodicea. So, in other words, this idea of receiving the tree of life and to eat from it, receiving um, the manna from heaven, um, reigning with Christ, being clothed in white, having um, your name written in the book of life, uh, inheriting the new Jerusalem, sitting on the throne with Christ. These are gifts and promises given to the whole church on earth. So this is a sevenfold gospel promise that again is meant to, for us to be encouraged and strengthened as we endure the trials and fight against the sevenfold sins. Okay, make sense? So then what we see in these letters beautifully is what we Lutherans would call a law gospel pattern. Every single letter has an, has an element or more of law and an element or more of gospel. That's kind of neat in and of itself. These are mini-sermons, if you will. But one point that Brighton brings out, and one point that we also want to keep in mind, is that this sevenfold letter to the sevenfold church is really written as the preface to the content of the revelation proper. Okay. And what's important about that is that we see these letters in part as preparatory. They are calls to repentance, and there are certainly promises to the gospel therein. But those calls to repentance are meant to prepare us to receive the rest of the vision, which culminates in nothing less than the new heavens and the new earth, and the bridegroom, who is the Lamb, and his wedding feast in the kingdom which will have no end, and Jerusalem, his holy bride descending from on high, and this great marriage between heaven and earth, and, and the fullness of the age, the telos of all things, come. All right, so again, these letters are to prepare us to receive that ultimate vision at the end, to open our hearts and minds to what's truly to come in reality, in history, for each and every one of us as God's people. Okay, so that gives us, uh, you know, that gives us a lot to chew on, I think, and, and by way of preparation. And I think we could, um, we could certainly spend more time, but, but maybe, maybe we ought not. Maybe we just simply pop back into Ephesus, where we left off last week, and start digging into uh, some of these themes. So, just to be uh, complete about it, chapter 2, verse 1. And again, this is the one, the, so the one is speaking. We want to have this in our minds so that we're reading with continuity here. The one who is speaking um, isn't just Jesus in some sort of generic way. It's Jesus as the Son of Man. Okay, That's the imagery you want to have in mind beginning at, at verse 12 and following. It's, it's Jesus who, uh, and because what you're going to see is that from this uh, 
image, from this visualization of Jesus, flows all of these letters. So, in fact, as I'm thinking about it, let's just read chapter, 12, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, so you can see what I'm talking about as we go. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, remember that's the high priestly robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, that's uh, kingship. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Remember how this one like the Son of Man is now also reflecting the characteristics of the Ancient of Days. This is all Daniel 7. The theology here is whoever sees Jesus sees the Father. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Okay, that's... That's the image we want to have in our mind. We want to imagine that, visualize it, because John is certainly seeing this. And then you're going to understand that then these sevenfold letters flow visually, if you will, from this picture. Certainly, he is the one speaking. So, chapter 2, verse 1, we have the speaker. It's, it's this one like the Son of Man. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So you see how his identity in that same image of of one like the Son of Man is now flowing in and leading into the letter to Ephesus. And so it will be with other letters as well. Okay, now beautiful here, not not to be skipped over, is this idea that he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Again, whether you go with Brighton and see those as angelic beings, the seven angels of the, of the church on earth, or whether you um, go with some others who see these as you know, earthly pastors, either way, quite comforting that the Lord has them in his right hand. And likewise comforting that the Lord is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, he is not, this is not the imagery, he is not up in heaven a bazillion miles away looking down on earth at his church uh, far away, far away from their suffering, you know, and, and all their prayers and devotions are like barely a squeak in his ear through all the cosmic ether between the two. No, Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands. Now, This is a little bit of a problem if you've got kind of this overly Calvinistic mind where Jesus is sort of locked at the right hand of God on on a throne and can't go anywhere because Jesus here identifies himself. And remember, this is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I am the living one, he says. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is the one who puts himself and locates himself in the midst of the seven lampstands, in the midst of the churches. Where are the churches? On earth. So Jesus identifies and locates himself as being on earth in the midst of his church. Okay. Um, so we hear in our gospel text, you know, at the very end of it today, lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And here we see how beautifully John takes that very same theme and presents it to us. Pastor, can I ask? Yeah, please do. So uh, in his right hand, go with the right hand, and the rule, the authority, the arm of salvation, and the comfort that we have in knowing that the churches are in his right hand. Yeah, exactly right. So the, so the comment that was being made is sort of this theology of the right hand of God, that if you, if you look at the references to the right hand of God uh, throughout the Old Testament scriptures in particular, references to his salvific act, um, there's, this, there's this beautiful sort of, dichotomy or, or two sides of the coin. On the one hand, his, his right hand comforts and consoles and is tender and merciful toward 
those who are his own. In the other hand, on the other hand, it means business. His right hand goes out and does battle and uh, fights on behalf of the people and chases away those things that would harm them and oppress them. So, yeah, you've got that beautiful theology there too. Um, you know, kind of, kind of that same of like thy rod and thy staff that comfort me. You know, it's like on the one hand, those tools are used to to lead and, and guide and gently shepherd the sheep. On the other hand, those tools are turned to drive away the lion or the wolf or the bear or whatever may come. So, yeah, thank you for that, David. Okay, um, so then verse two. I know your works. Now, it's kind of interesting, not to make too much of it, but the your here is singular. <coughs> um, I know your works, which, you know, this, this is just one of the many places in Scripture where individuality is not really what's going on. Um, this is corporately the church, corporately the congregation. I mean, again, the congregation in Ephesus, certainly, but even the broader church. Um, we are one body, um, and that's, that's certainly in view here. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Okay, so, well, maybe it's as good a place as any to simply pause. The Lord himself, because he walks in the midst of the lampstands, is familiar with the workings of the congregation, with their toil, and with the patient endurance that they've exhibited. And then he counts this amongst their merits, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And so, you know, here, I think that this is like, you know, it's a distinction we have to wrestle with because there is a very much here a clear theology of those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. And there's very much a clear theology of not all who come into the church are of the church. And so there's, they are commended here for... Um, not bearing with those, or, you know, you cannot bear with those who are evil. He's commending them for this, for making that distinction. Um, and then he continues, but have tested those, and, and here's probably the evil that he's talking about specifically, tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Now, we don't know what the specific circumstances are here in Ephesus, but we've probably got a pretty good idea when you look at Paul's letter to the Galatians, for example. Um, those who are claiming to be apostles, ooh, now that I think about it, Corinthians 2, um, they're following along with Paul and they're telling people, um, they're telling Gentile Christians, you know, in order to be saved, you have to live as a Jew. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow our rights and customs, etc. Yes, sir. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in the Gospel of John and also in, uh, well, certainly in the letters, First uh, John, for sure, where it seems like he's going up against uh, certain heresies where people are coming from the apostles. You know, they went out from us, but they were not of us. And I think that has to do with his apostolic authority and what, what he's been told to give the people from Jesus, and these people are following another kind of apostleship. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so the comment for those of you listening uh, in on is, is you find similarities in John's gospel where he's dealing with those who are you know, among us but not of us, and then they go out and that kind of thing going on, um, particularly John's epistles there in mind. Um, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So uh, you know, I, think, I think that that's probably right to think about it like this, who call themselves apostles and are not. What makes them apostles? Um, it's it, clearly what's meant here is the doctrine they bring. That's what distinguishes them as false apostles. You know. yes, There's also in church history, uh, uh, one of the deacons that gets uh, ordered in Acts, uh, named Nicholas, in hmm. church history they, they say that he was the guy, the Nicholas associated with the Nicolaitans, which gets mentioned in one of the letters. Yeah, that's so coming Paul, right up. So it seems like John is dealing with a certain kind of heretical group that is is doing stuff to the church and saying that they're doing it in the name of the apostles. And he's mm -hmm. against that. 
firmly. Right, exactly right. So, so the, the devil is in the details and trying to figure out exactly what these false apostles are teaching. Um, again, if you kind of take the Pauline approach, as, as I started to do, uh, it would be like the Judaizing circumcision party. If you take the, the Johannine epistle approach, it's those who are denying that, that Christ came in the flesh, a, a sort of general Gnosticism, maybe more specific, a kind of uh, docetizing uh, heresy going on. As you read along in this, in this epistle, which we'll do, this letter to the Ephesus, if you tie these false apostles in with the Nicolaitans, as you were doing, there you end up with probably a kind of Gnosticism that is manifesting itself in uh, uh, idolatry and adultery, right? Because, because it's this idea of um, Gnosticism is like, well, what, I, what I do with my body doesn't matter. Um, because Christ has redeemed my soul. Okay? The body has all these lusts and all these desires. Uh, pff, the body's worms meet anyway. May as well just let the body sin all the more. It'll die, and then I'll be set free from my body. And so you kind of there's this kind of pseudo-Christian Gnosticism that that causes people to claim to be Christians, claim to be justified by grace through faith apart from works. And it's really all just a setup so that they allow their flesh to do whatever they want. So that seems to be the case for the Nicolaitans. And we'll get into the history you mentioned, too. Uh, Irenaeus is one of those folks, if, and there's another, too, I think, that Brighton mentions um, that, that traces back to the guy in Acts. I think Brighton disagrees with that in the end. But anyway, we'll take a look at it for what it's worth. I, to me, it's an open question. Okay, so we've done about as much as we can with this identity of... Uh, those who call themselves apostles and are not. Again, it's not so simple as, it's not as though they're usurping an office as such, you know, because that would be very easy. It's like, no, you're not an apostle. You're just not on, your name's not on the list, right? That, that, but that's not what's going on because look at the context. You cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. How, what's that testing? You're testing their doctrine over and against the doctrine that was delivered to the church once and for all. So their non-apostleship is doctrine-based, not office-based. That's the point. All right, and, and in testing them, you have found them to be false. That's, um, you know, you can think of John's epistle to test the spirits, he says. Okay, and then verse 3 I know you are enduring patiently. Here's yet one more repetition of that. And bearing up for my name's sake. Now, where you see my name's sake in general, but perhaps particularly in the Johannine writings, you are, you, your impulse ought to be baptismal. You're baptized into the name of Jesus to conflate it with Matthew's text, into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's almost a, it, it, it's a spatial and relational change. Um, to be baptized into Jesus' name is to bear the name of Christ and be a small c, Christ. To be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to be moved spatially and relationally into the family of God and to be a bearer of that sign upon your, your brow, as we'll see later in Revelation with the Sphragas. So the point being where you see, for my name's sake, at least have in the back of your mind like, there's this baptismal flavor there when you have that language. Okay, so I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. That is, you are baptized and bearing up for my name's sake means you have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You bear his name upon your brow um, and you are bearing up. You are acting like a son of the Father. You're confessing who he is. You're denouncing those who contradict him. That's the, that's the sense here. I mean, Luther gets at this in the, in the small catechism um, in spades, particularly in the Lord's Prayer, where he talks about, you know, we want to, we want to lead a godly life and, um, you know, because, precisely because God is our Father. 
and he becomes our father in baptism. And so that's, anyway, that's all what's going on here. All right, so uh, you have, yeah, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, okay, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Now, let's pause before we get to the consequence if they don't repent and if that repentance doesn't manifest itself. Okay, so he brings a charge against his church. Uh, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, Brighton takes this to simply be, um, the lo- the, we, we love because God first loved us. That's the way that John treats that. And so the first love is precisely the love of God in Christ Jesus, specifically Christ and Him crucified. So they've drifted away from this Christ-centeredness, this um, understanding of God's love poured out on them in through, through Christ Jesus. That's, this, that, that's really what's at the root of this abandoning the love you had at first. Okay? Um, so again, not to, not, it's, I mean, not to put too fine of a point on it, it's a both and. It's abandoning the, it's, it's drifting away and abandoning um, the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus, and so our love for him grows cold. We love because he first loved us. If we're not, no longer acknowledging his love for us, our love is going to grow cold. That's basically the way that Brighton takes uh, this verse. I think it's as good as any. It's a little bit nebulous. It's a little bit kind of like insert whatever you want to insert in here. Um, I think Brighton's probably got as good a take as any. So, verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen, would again in Brighton's read be go back to the cross, go back to the love of God in Christ crucified, repent and do the works you did at first. In returning to Christ, you see the burning love of the Father for you, and so your love for others burns hot and bright. Then comes the threat, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay, and here what we see from the Lord is that his law and gospel preaching, as we Lutherans would call it, isn't empty threat kind of law. It isn't, hey, uh, I'd like you to repent of this, but if you don't, it's okay. I forgive you and love you anyway. That's exactly what he doesn't say. He says uh, very clearly, uh, if not, that is, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And he repeats it, unless you repent. So this is, I mean, this is definitely a call to action. Um, from the Lord to his church. This is something that they can actually do and accomplish. In fact, so much so that if they don't do it and don't accomplish it, he's going to remove their lampstand, which is a way essentially of saying the church in this place is going to be no more. All right, um, verse 6, Yet this you have, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, that's very interesting language. In the first place, I think we've been taught in the 20th and 21st century that hating is bad. And so hating is sin, uh, de facto. What's that? Maybe reject. Maybe reject. Well, I like like hate. I mean, that's the literal Greek word. And and why I I like hate is because look at at the... uh, the apposition of it to love, right? So if you love the Lord who is good, you will hate evil. And isn't that what they're commended for? Like you cannot, I mean, back in chapter 2, you cannot bear with those who are evil. Um, So love and hate are are actually good things. They're actually virtuous things. 
uh, for the Christian as long as they're done in the Christ-like way. He has No sooner has he talked to them about, about falling away from the love they had at first, and then he's commending them for, for hating the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, he says. Okay, so there's that juxtaposition between love and hate, and we see then um, the importance of both. So I think there's a, I mean, there's a number of things that are like a little bit scandalous to our ears here in, these, in this text, and good, I mean, wonderful. God have mercy on us if we've t- so tamed the text and so tamed our theology that we can't be troubled by God's word any longer. Um, it's written by Christ precisely to trouble us, and the trouble is, is right in the fact that it's not just up here. It's actually in reality. It's, it's actually in our interactions with uh, those who are in the church but not of the church, the Nicolaitans, for example, um, whether or not our church will continue to exist in a place. If you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand, etc. This, this makes us uncomfortable because we ourselves in our modern age have floated into a kind of Gnosticism, where as long as Christianity is all up here in our head and maybe in here in our conscience, then I can handle it. But as soon as it breaks out into reality, it's like, whoa, I don't have a paradigm for that. Here's one of the challenges uh, right off the bat to us as, as 20, 21st century Christians is, well, look what we ourselves are missing and what we ourselves need to have. A cr- concrete and indeed external understanding of Christ and his, his work and his role in our lives. Okay, well... Beating the horse dead here. Let's, uh, let's keep moving on. So, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, um, here I'll read just what Brighton has to say about them. The Nicolaitans were members of a sect founded by some unknown Nicolaus. Some have thought that he was one of the seven deacons in Acts uh, chapter 6, verse 5. There's a Nicolaus there. And, uh, yes, Irenaeus is, is given as the, only, uh, as the only example here in Brighton's footnote. He continues, But that identification is unlikely if for no other reason than that the sect appears to have existed much later than the time in which the deacon of Acts 6 lived. However, Irenaeus mentions that they were an antinomian sect which claimed license for sensual sins. And again, we just talked about how that kind of Gnosticism would breed into that. I mean, uh, whatever evil influence they had, according to Eusebius, they did not long sustain themselves. Okay, Eusebius, of course, is the church, great church historian, um, and he says they weren't around for long. Um, yeah. But at the time Revelation was written, Brighton continues, their teaching was influential in Pergamum. Uh, We're going to see another reference to the Nicolaitans when we get there, as well as Ephesus. Now, an interesting theory, uh, so so, um, to try to do what I can for you in terms of the language, Nicolaitans, um, the, the Nico, you actually know because it's Nike, it's the shoes you wear. Um, Nike, of course, I, you know, I think there's a Greek goddess named Nike, and she's the goddess of victory, and that's where your Nike shoes come from. Well, that in China, I think. But um, be that as it may, uh, there's that root of victory or overcoming. Now, that's interesting because the language at the end of this epistle to the church in Ephesus, as well as the others, the language of the one conquering is that same root, is that same uh, nekonti is what it is um, in that context, to the one who, uh, the one who conquers, nikao is the, is the Greek. Um, Brighton remarks, Uh, that this is a favorite word of John. Of the 28 occurrences in the New Testament, 17 are in Revelation, 6 in 1 John, and 1 in the Gospel according to John. The noun Nike, 
appears only once in the New Testament, 1 John 5, 4, where the Christian's victory, which has overcome the world, is equated with faith, pistis in Greek. Each of the seven letters ends with a promise to the one who is victorious or conquers. So some suggest a, a wordplay here. You know, and this is an interesting, it's an interesting theory. I won't take a lot of time doing it. It's a theory that um, Richard Bauckham entertains in his um, theology of the book of Revelation as well. This is the theory. I'll try to state it as succinctly as I can. That when you take all the bad guys from the letters and, and kind of put them up, there, there may be this nuance or that nuance, but they're all essentially doing the same thing. So the false apostles, the Nicolaitans, uh, the Balaamites, um, later on Babylon, uh, oh, what's the other one I'm forgetting right off the top of my head? Um, I, think it's, I think it's Jezebel. Is it Jezebel? Gosh, no. Anyway, when you put all the, is it Jezebel? From, yeah, okay, good, it's Jezebel. I'm not losing my mind yet. need to have a coffee break here. Thyatira, Jezebel. When you put all these bad guys together, it's, um, there are some distinctions to be sure, but it's sort of like they're all the same thing. They're all just simply anti-Christ. They're all trying to overcome in one way or another. There's, there's the true apostles and there's the false apostles. There's the true overcomers. And then there's like the the Nikanti, the Nika, those who Nikao, and then there's the Nicolaitans. You see, um, there's the Church of God, and there's the Jezebel or the Babylon. Okay, there's the prophets of God or the apostles of God, the the, the true pastors, if you will, and then there's the um, the Balaamites who are for sale. Okay, in other words. All of these things, while well, maybe nuanced and maybe you can distinguish them from one another in some sense, all of them are basically just copies and, and uh, contraries to what the church and the ministry really is, if that makes sense. So, in, in other words, in trying to spell out all these differences and worry about, hmm, how were the Nicolaitans in Ephesus but not in Smyrna? Ah, odd. And then later on in this church but not in the, any of the others. Odd. That maybe, just maybe, we're reading a little too much into that. And it's more a thematic approach. It's more of like viewing these bad guys as icons of the badness that is common amongst all the churches of the, of the first century. And then by extension... Um, the other, the other churches geographically at that time, as well as the church of all times and places. So that's a, that's a theory that some put forward, um, and it's certainly worth having in the back of your mind. Okay, um, so, so let's see, where did I leave off? Yes, the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 7 uh, coincidentally, or, or not actually, this Jesus here speaks exactly as the Jesus in the Gospels does. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, this is very plainly a spiritual hearing. So um, everyone who has an ear, you know, these words rattle the bones in your ear and you hear it, but are you hearing it in the way of faith? Are you believing that this is the living word of the living God? Are you taking it to heart? Um, that's, this, that's really this challenge from the Lord here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, fascinating, because look, it's not to the church in Ephesus. It's to the churches. And so here's, here's like your proof text for this idea that even though it's written to Ephesus, it's written beyond Ephesus. It's to be received by all. The other fascinating thing here, and this is like theology proper or maybe even Christology proper, look what Jesus says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But who has just spoken? Jesus. Exactly. That's the theology. What Jesus says, the Spirit says. And what the Spirit says, Jesus says. You cannot separate them. Now, this is a profound thing because from time to time you look at the Scriptures and you say, well, where is the Holy Spirit? I see the Father. I see the Son. I don't see the Holy Spirit. 
And in fact, some scholars have even posited an early Christian dinatarianism instead of trinitarianism on the basis of this. But that's to completely miss John's theology. Okay? Here already you can see how the, the three persons of the divine trinity are wed together. They're distinct, and yet they're one. Here you see that what Jesus speaks, the Spirit speaks. Back in the image of the one like the Son of Man, who then has also the hair of the Ancient of Days, to see the Son of Man is to see the Ancient of Days. To see the Son is to see the Father. So again, you, you see how all of this is wedded together, right? And it all centers on Jesus. So again, where is the, where is the Spirit in those places where just the Father and just the Son is mentioned? The Spirit is the one doing the speaking. Exactly. Um, and this, by the way, is, is the great problem. In the same way you run into a major issue, as soon as you say, okay, Jesus, um, we've studied the Son enough. Let's move on to the Father. Son, over here, let's study the Father. You've just lost the Father. Show us the Father and it will be enough. I can't do that. Have I been with you so long and still you don't know me? To see me is to see the Father. Okay, the same thing happens when you go like this. Show us the Holy Spirit. We're done with the, we're done with the Son. We've, we've studied the Son enough. Show us the Spirit. As soon as you've done that, you've blown it. Because the Spirit doesn't speak apart from Christ. What Christ says, the Spirit says. And what the Spirit says, Christ says. He takes the things that are mine and declares them unto you, Jesus says. John's Gospel is, is the most, uh, particularly the upper room discourse, chapters 14 and following in John's Gospel. The most thorough theological treatment we have of what the Holy Spirit is up to in the New Testament. And there in John and here in Revelation, the Spirit is doing what Jesus is doing and Jesus is doing what the Spirit's doing and you can't ever separate them out. As soon as you do, you've, you've lost the Spirit. So, again, a lot packed in, but this is John's way of doing theology. It's a lot packed in. No sooner than Jesus has finished uh, more or less speaking, wrapping things up, and he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Now, here's that language we were talking about earlier with the Nicolaitans and the Nicanti, or those who nikao, those who conquer. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this takes us all the way back to Genesis and the imagery there. Um, you remember that God takes away the tree. There's a lot of mystery here, to be honest with you, and a lot more mystery than we probably often recognize or, or give its due. The, gen the text in Genesis never says that they eat of the tree of life simply says that after they eat of the tree of the knowledge and good, of good and evil, God takes away the tree of life. Okay? And the rationale there is, lest they live forever. The implication is to eat of that tree of life would be to live forever in a state of sin. So it's a great and necessary mercy. I mean, in a sense, it's a tragic evil because it's not according to God's plan. I mean, he planted the tree of life that it would be eaten that we would live forever. Like that's its purpose. So on the one hand, it's a great tragedy that he has to take it away. On the other hand, it's a great mercy that he takes it away so that we don't, you know, in theory, eat of it and live forever in our sinful state. So that tree is removed. And here the Lord is promising to the one who conquers. And again, you, you conquer by keeping the faith uh, and enduring until Christ returns. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Okay, um, it's future tense, to be sure. There is definitely a sense in which we can, we can think about this as a now and not yet. Um, indeed, isn't the cross, in a very hidden way, that tree of death, is it not exactly the tree of life? And to eat of that tree of life, is it not to partake of the body and blood of Christ, the fruit of that tree, and thus to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life in his name? Of course, all this is true. Um, but there's a sense in which we will eat of that tree in 
in a way that is, uh, is ultimate. The eating of that tree right now that we enjoy is, is in a figure and it's penultimate. There's a way in which we will eat of that tree that is ultimate and expressive of a final and everlasting communion with God, a, a consummation. Um, and so that's what's more in view here. You can note the physical language, so we're not floating around as, in dis, as disembodied spirits. We're actually uh, eating um, of a tree, which is the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise is an interesting, a very interesting word. I'll spare you going off on that. Um, but paradise, the language there originally is just simply garden. Garden. And um, paradise is, of course, in the intermediate state, um, that is when we die, okay? paradise is the antithesis of phulake. So paradisos in Greek is the antithesis of phulake prison. So when you die, you go into this realm of the dead. Sometimes in scripture it's called Sheol. Okay? Whether you're a Christian or not, you go into Sheol. And as you enter Sheol, you are either on the side of paradise or the side of phulake prison. Um, that's the division there. Okay, so um, there's that. But then what clearly the Lord has in mind here, as we'll see as we get toward the end of Revelation, is the physical restoration, the new heavens and the new earth, the physical restoration of Eden. Um, Luther, uh, I think following Irenaeus on this point um, in his Genesis lectures, sees the original garden that God makes as... Uh, Good, but not perfect. Good, but not perfect. In other words, when you go to Genesis and you see Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are good, but not perfect. The garden is good, but not perfect. In other words, what God intended from the very beginning is a progression, okay, such that the original garden would become uh, without sin, death, or anything like this, the original garden would become uh, the garden that we will inherit at the end of time. And Adam and Eve, uh, though they were created good, were not created perfect. They were created um, in such a way that they're not yet of the Spirit. And that would be a beautiful translation into being, becoming spiritual beings with a spiritual body. It's nonetheless a physical body, but it's a spiritual body. It's not the same mode of presence and manner of being. All this was what God intended, this growth from good to telos to perfect. Um, sin is precisely what put a wrench in that and put the whole thing uh, you know, off in a trajectory that goes into the opposite direction, into hell. It's Christ who comes and lifts that trajectory back up so that what God always intended us to inherit and grow into, we once more will inherit and grow into. So um, that then uh, reflected here in this theology of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, well, I spent a little more time on that than I intended, but so be it. Uh, let's go into Smyrna next week. The Lord be with you.